Well, you know, the thing is, like, you, you're talking about, you know, making a better life for yourself and becoming healthier, losing weight and stuff like that. And I can't have that. I need oh. to have this skinny man, fat man thing going on. So I have to, I have to find another fat guy. Oh, you need the fat guy. Shit. I mean, yeah, I need to find a guy who's more committed to staying fat. You know, that has always been really, really important in the art of talk radio. <laughs> yeah, people can really hear your weight and yeah. my weight. <laughs> you mean they would notice if I no longer sounded like this? <laughs> Hi there, everybody, and welcome to Talking During the Movie, the show where two jackoffs talk about new movies and movie news. I'm Mike. And I'm James. And uh, this is episode number 47, uh, titled quite aptly, My Big Fat Greek, Mike and James. Uh, He's Greek and I'm fat. It's perfect. (laughs) Uh, It's also titled that because while lots of uh, big films came out, Conjuring 2, Finding Dory, um, Central Intelligence, if you will. Uh, oh, God. I, you know, uh, eh, I would. I, I still want to see it. As a I, dude, I saw it. Not bad. Really? Yeah, not bad. Oh, you made me happy by saying that. Not, <laughs> a, because um, I figured it would kind of occupy the same like guilty pleasure territory as uh, We Are the Millers, which I... <laughs> find funny even though it's not a good movie um but also i mean i just kind of want to see it for fat rock singing in the locker room <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. yeah oh man no i was sold at that moment yeah no it was it was not bad it was just enjoyable you know it's like the the story was generic as hell and unfolded yeah of course but who the hell cares like this was they were just fun people on the screen yeah <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, for, well, uh, for all speak, those movies. Speaking of, ge- hold on, hold on, let, let me just do this. Really okay. quick. Speaking of generic stories, ugh, we're reviewing the most generic story <laughs> of all time today, The Lobster. Ugh. I mean, how many times have you heard this one, James? A, a story about single people going to a hotel uh, who must find a partner within 45 days, and if they don't, they get turned into an animal. Yeah, and then, you know, if they... If they hunt down one of the people who are trying to escape, they get an extra day. You know, I, that, I mean, I just, that, I swear that's been done. God, I just swear to God, if I see this plot one more time, I'm going to fucking scream. <laughs> I mean, I will I will actually scream if where's, I see this plot one more time. <laughs> where's the originality, Hollywood? <laughs> yeah, because while all these movies came out, we are reviewing some, some Greek shit. Some like, weird-ass Greek shit. Because <laughs> not only are we see, are we reviewing the lobster first and foremost, which has been it's probably still in theaters some places. It had a limited release throughout this uh, late spring by Yorgos Lanthimos. We're also doing his his breakout, most famous film, his most notorious film. Yes, infamous. His most infamous film, Dogtooth, uh, which Mike and I had not seen before. This we we heard the legend of Dogtooth. And now we got to experience the film. All the myths, but none of the man. <laughs> um, and actually, uh, apparently, it, it, it's, it's interesting actually to bring up, uh, I mean, you know, we're not going to harp on, on nationality here, but it is interesting because I, I think Dogtooth is like the first film to be nominated for, or the first Greek film to be up for uh, Best Foreign Language Film in... I think a few decades when it when it came out. Yeah, yeah, it was like a big 
big deal. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting because I actually, I mean, you kind of like, I mean, Greek film is not on my radar too much. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I, I see in terms of like, you know, the foreign films we see, a lot of French, um, a lot of uh, Japanese and Chinese, a lot of, you know, German, um, <laughs> you know, UK, stuff like that, Russian maybe, but almost never... Uh, at, uh, all Greek film has been pretty much not on my radar, so it's kind of uh, it's kind of exciting to be uh, introduced to it, especially in this way. Um, Before we get uh, too far into it, though, yeah, yes, yeah, oh, <laughs> we do God. have other things to talk about. Oh, sorry. All right, all right, all right. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, we have other terrible, terrible one, things to talk about. Yeah, one big thing in particular that. Uh, I don't really think anyone can ignore at this point. Um, no. uh, you will not believe who was cast in Spider-Man Homecoming. <laughs> Fuck up. I hate you so much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, okay, all right. I'm sorry. We, I know. I appreciate your attempt to inject humor into this because this is going to be very bleak. He would have uh, wanted us to laugh. But God damn it, Anton Yelkin died. Yeah. And that fucking fucking sucks so fucking much so fucking fuck 2016 yeah god there's a, there's a subreddit called fuck 2016 and all it is it's just uh postings of different celebrity deaths oh. um and it's funny because i mean there's a lot of prominent celebrities on there there's you know prince uh david bowie uh alan rickman um and everyone was pissed on those comment threads don't get me wrong but there was something like particularly charged on the one for anton yelkin and and i would mainly say that's probably because this is a uh 25 year old up-and-coming actor uh showed a lot of promise has done some really great work and his best work was definitely ahead of him his best work was absolutely ahead of him even though i i, I even i loved him earlier this year in green room that he did a fantastic job um and uh, th that actually got me more excited than anything I'd seen him in before um, to see what he was going to do in the future. And, um, like, and, and mind you, when all those other celebrities died, I mean, they're all legends. I was, like, super sad. I was just like, oh, fuck, I can't believe, you know, it was bad. A Anton Yelkin, when I saw that news story, that was the first one I, I actually blurted out. I'm just like, what the fuck? Yeah. It does not make sense. Um, and then the more that I learned about the circumstances of his death, the more upset I got because my initial assumption, like most people, so he's actually now joined something kind of macabre called the 27 club, which is, uh, in, you know, a list of prominent celebrities who actually have died at the particular age of 27. Um, and there's a surprising amount of, of people, mainly musicians, um, but a lot of famous people who have died at 27, usually from drug-related reason. You know, That's the thing. When young, famous people die, it's usually drugs. That's It's right. sad. It doesn't take anything away from the tragedy. Like, Amy Winehouse no. overdosed. It's not like, oh, she's just a druggie. It's like, That's no. fucking sad. She didn't get the help she needed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's sad in the sense that, oh, like, we, you know, people, like, they weren't able to get help. People weren't able to help them. Um, and it's 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 tragic but there's just like something uh, like there, it's just like a different kind of uh a, a, a different kind of pain when you like realize that the cause of their death was completely completely preventable like it <laughs> entirely 
particularly for someone so young. And like, I'm, I'm not gonna lie, I, um, uh, you know, I made a pretty brash assumption when I first saw, just when I saw the headline, I'm just like, oh shit, was it drugs? Like, I just kind of assumed. It's like, oh, was it an overdose? No, I had, I had the exact same thought when I first saw it. I saw that in this awful surprise because I just saw the, the, the picture of Anton Yelkin on the story. And I was like, oh, what's Anton Yelkin doing? I scrolled down and it's like, oh, he died. And the first thought in my head, besides fuck you for making that a surprise to me, um, yeah. was, it was, was it drugs? Like, did he right. overdose? I mean, with someone so young, it's not like, it's not, I mean, like, the odds of something medical going wrong naturally are are slim to none, yeah. and um, I mean, pretty much the only other uh, prominent cause would be you know like suicide or a car crash, um, and it was a car crash of sorts, but not in any kind of conventional sense. Like when I read that, I was actually even more not more, but I was like still wondering if drugs were involved because my question was, how the fuck do you? not put your car in park and not know it and that just seems so odd to me and then later later that day uh someone posted a video of the gear shifter inside the the model of jeep grand cherokee that anton Yelkin had which by the way was on recall um and it is the most dangerous shitty design for a gear shift i've ever seen so the um, uh, indication of w- which gear you you are in is actually on the throttle itself, and I'm I'm probably not using any of the correct terminology. <laughs> I I don't know shit about cars. It's on the transmission. Uh, thank you, James. Shifter, I don't know. Shifter, yeah, it's on the shifter, and uh, and uh, as opposed to most cars where you move physically move the shifter up or down to the gear that you want. This one actually doesn't move. You tap it forward or back and the light will move to indicate that the gear is shifted. Um, and it'll hide, it'll light up the gear that you're in. And it is so dangerous. Like it is so easy to skip a gear or to not go to the right, proper one. If you're not eyeing it really carefully, it's basically the worst design for a gear shifter I've ever seen. So, um, Basically, this horrible design uh, has actually caused some injuries in the past. Uh, Anton Yelkin is uh, the first confirmed fatality from it, and uh, I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of legal, you know, legal uh, fallout from this. Um, But so, yeah, it's bullshit. It was a completely avoidable uh, loss of a super talented actor, and. Fuck you, Jeep Grand Cherokee. Cheap. Not, <laughs> not, not necessarily the Jeep Grand Cherokee in specific, in particular. I don't know why I would blame that particular car. Fuck you, Jeep. Uh, and, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it I mean, we, we fucking just reviewed one of the best Anton Yelkin films I've seen. Yeah, that was, that was, that, that, I mean, I haven't seen uh, Like Crazy yet, which I know you've recommended, and, uh, yeah. I'm now urging, uh, er, no, I'm, well, you were urged me, and I'm agreeing with you that we, definitely need to do it now um in a in, yeah i'd previously i'd previously pitched like crazy as a showcase for felicity jones who's the co-star for anton yelkin um and is relevant because of the upcoming star wars film rogue one but now um now anton yelkin goes and it's like people need to see this movie they need to see you know what this guy's capable of what this guy was capable of fuck me fuck everyone yeah. fuck everything 
Fuck everything. It's a, uh, fuck it. Just fuck yeah. it. Now on to our stupid show. Oh, God damn it. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, fuck. Rest in peace, Anton Yelkin. It, it, it sucks. It really sucks. I. We're eloquent as yeah. fuck. Yeah. Well, d- <laughs> yeah, d- sorry. Sometimes the visceral, you know, the the emotionally wounded response is the most poignant, so... Well, yeah, no, no, that's... Ugh. Come on, I started off the segment by saying that sucks so fucking... That fucking sucks so fucking much. Yeah. Ugh. Anyways, that's um... It. Seriously, you will not believe who was cast in the Spider-Man. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Uh, you won't even know who he is. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know, let's save that rant. Um, yeah, no, no, we'll save that for later, but, uh... We're actually uh, hoping to have a good discussion, actually, right before we get into the reviews. Yes, in happier news, is HBO going down the shitter? <laughs> More at 11. No, well, okay, so in the news recently is Vinyl, the show on HBO that was previously reported to get a second season, has now been canceled by HBO, leading the internet to speculate and sort of reflect on what HBO has really done recently. And they're not really getting, not really getting too many too many bites on that question. Mm. And of course, you have Game of Thrones. Of and course, I and, and will go to bat for Veep every day of the week, and I don't think really think I need to go to bat for, for as, it. as you should. Um, and like, there's Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> not not a narrative series, but last week with John Oliver. Uh, is also, I believe it's successful. It's definitely well received and has a lot of fans. Um, I think I think the story is just that they seem to recently being more marked by their failures than their successes, which is not really what yeah. HBO has been known for. Because Vinyl wasn't the first, and doesn't seem like it's going to be the last show to <sighs> you know get canceled. We mentioned right. a few in the pre-show, like The Brink, which lasted all of a wink. Um, uh, I literally forgot it existed. <laughs> um, the newsroom went way downhill. Um, was uh, it the leftovers? The, the leftovers, which is still on, I suppose. I think. Yeah. Um, well, so was like Ballers, but how long is that going to last? Yeah, Ballers is still on. Um, <laughs> oh, there is a show uh, that Andrew Hay, uh, uh, um, director of forty uh, forty five years, yeah, uh, was actually a, a large creative. Um, uh, had a large creative presence in called Looking. I think he directed most, if not all, of the episodes. I think it was most of the episodes. Um, and it looks like that was canceled last year. I didn't even know that was over. Um, so it, even their acclaimed shows, it seems like a lot of them are slipping under the radar. Vinyl, um, it's interesting because I haven't actually watched it, uh, but it was... Um, I mean, they were marketing the shit out of it. I mean, I, I, I work for a company that deals with ads, and I saw so many for vinyl. And we don't get, like, premium network uh tv promos so these were airing on like uh we, these were airing on cable shows so i mean hbo was putting this show out there and it was i mean it put scorsese's name all over it it put terrence winter's name all over it um and it's i mean it's got a pretty pretty uh staggering cast uh and the reviews have been good from what i can tell um nothing probably not necessarily hbo quality but um, I mean, I think they were probably pay. You know, uh, I, I think this was supposed to be a blockbuster series for them. Um, 
something new to come along that would maybe take the place of something like Boardwalk Empire. Not in terms of themes or content. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand what you mean. Just, just you know, that type of show. Kind of a combination of prestige and spectacle. Um, and all this is, of course, overlooking the the biggest failure of their, theirs recently, which is True Detective. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's really the elephant in the room here. So, I, I mean, it's basically the... I mean, the thing is, though, how do you point to a a general downward trend in HBO when True Detective's drop-off is not a trend? It's just a cliff. It's a a spectacular first season and an abysmal second season. Yeah. Uh, There's not really... And, and, I mean, coming out within a year, year and a half of each other, um, it's not really, to me, that's not indicative of... Um, declining network standards that's indicative of um, I think a botched creative team for the second season and maybe not uh, and and a weakening of the writing I I don't know so my stance on it is I would you know I would concede maybe a bit that HBO's lineup right now is not the strongest it's been Um, Game of Thrones is obviously it's it's first it's it, it's a flag it's flagship show at this point. It is, you know, the first thing that people think about when they think of HBO at this moment in time. Um, uh, but I would also say that it's got, you know, Veep and it, I mean it's got two of the best comedies on TV period right now, which is Veep and Silicon Valley. Um, it's got my personal favorite political commentary show. It's last week with John Oliver. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at its back catalog, when you look at, you know, it's like, you know, this is the network that made The Sopranos, The Wire, Deadwood, um, but, you know. Boardwalk Bo- Empire. Boardwalk Empire, Rome. True Blood uh, even had a good audience. Band, yeah. Band of Brothers, Oz, you know, like like so many great shows coming out of HBO. Um, I, it's easy to say that. I would say that they're maybe uh, in a transitional period right now where, like, they're really banking on Game of Thrones and they haven't yet found the next great flagship series and maybe they don't need one right now maybe game of thrones is enough for them um which i think is a shame because they should not be they, they should not become they, they sh- don't do what amc did and become uh, like amc became the walking dead network yeah don't become the game of thrones network you know um because they've been known for their consistent high quality content they're i mean like they will put out cinematic quality shows that no other network's putting that much money toward because they can. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would agree that their that their lineup isn't as strong as it has been in the past. That said, though, I think we have to, um, you know, ask ourselves what you know is it really fair to compare their lineup at one particular period of time uh, with their lineup uh, or the with the catalog of their shows from the past decade and a half. You know, or even longer than that. Um, you know, they've had tw- they, they've been accumulating great TV sh- series for twenty years. Just because right now we don't see as many great shows on HBO as they're known for, I wouldn't say that they're you know uh, th- that it's deficient in any way. But I, I see the concern though. Like, yeah, and that's sort of that's kind of my stance is that I'm a I'm of course not you know gonna write any sensational headlines about how HBO is dead or dying. Yeah. Um, but they are, they do, I think they need something. They need yeah. something else to sort of put this story to bed, you know, sort of like 
how Mads Mikkelsen put the Rogue One reshoots to bed. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, but in it would be in the form of a good show, you know? <laughs> yeah, for Some sure. original content to make people say, okay, now I'm not just going to HBO for Game of Thrones, you know? <laughs> right, right. And I mean, I mean, I'll admit right now, that's that's what I'm doing. Well, that's- and right now, I never got into Game of Thrones, so right now I'm going to HBO for Veep. Right, which you should be, because Veep is incredible, and I've, I've heard it's gotten even better. Uh, yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fair point. Also, Girls is still on, apparently. I, is it? Really? I guess so, yeah. Huh. But I don't really know if anyone still watches <laughs> Girls. But, uh, yeah, so take that for what you will. Um. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I will, I'll concede that there may be in-between hits, but I'm not... I'm by no means ready to to, um, to throw in the towel. They also... I mean, they did just... Uh, they featured Beyonce's Lemonade, um, Oh, you know, her visual album, which has gotten... Hey, it's gotten rave reviews, but you, can't act, but you can't actually... It was a one-time only uh, broadcast, <laughs> which I missed, and now you can only access it on a... Uh, on a particular music streaming service for the time being. So, okay. Um, yeah. So yeah. What are you talking about, James? What am I talking? I'm not talking about anything. I'm talking about, um, sea life. That's all I got. Sea life. Yeah. Okay. And, and Greeks. Ah, yes. Tell me any movie, any movie at all. And I will explain how the origin is Greek. <laughs> All right, the lobster. Try that one. Uh, so, um, well, I mean, I kind of summarized the plot of the lobster. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. I believe. I mean, really, you did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I believe this is technically a sci-fi? I mean, it's not right to call it sci-fi, but... They're I, calling it dystopian. But I do believe it takes place in some... I mean, there's they don't specify a time, but it definitely feels like it... Yeah, it's definitely a dystopian society, um, which kind of implies a future, but... Uh, Usually, yes. Uh, so it's essentially a future where... In, in which humans are legally required to have a romantic partner with them. Just Well, and that's the thing, too. I, I mean, you, you, you say that, but... And it's true, but going into it and how the how the movie unfolds, you don't you just sort right. of think like there's this cool hotel that people go to, you know? Right. You think that it's. I mean, you and almost there, you almost think it's a like it's a it's a last resort for people who are lonely. That's exactly yeah. That's and the mindset that I went into the film with is like, oh, he, you know, th- these people are they they lost their spouse or you know something happened. They're alone and they want a partner, so they're just throwing it all on the line and going to this hotel where they will have an opportunity. Basically, it just seems like a couple's, not a couple's retreat, but like a, a, you know, a matchmaking retreat where you would try and find someone, have this hotel hook you up with someone. I mean, you have 45 days to do it. And if you don't, you get turned uh, somehow into an animal. They never really explain how. Um, And, uh, that, that that was just kind of them, you know, kind of putting it all on the line because they're that lonely. Um, and more and more you hear these other details that 
that they're not explained it, and it's just, this is probably some of the best exposition without exposition I, I've ever really seen in a movie. Yeah, I would actually say that the um, in recent memory, the only one that I've seen that really did it better, uh, or at least as good, if not better, is the other film we're going to talk about today. Dog Tooth, yeah. Just Dog Tooth, which employs a very, very similar technique. Yeah, it just... It releases these things, like these lines, these scenarios that you sort of don't make sense in your mind with what you understand. So then it evolves your understanding of the world around you. I think in this one, the first time I had a question was like when when Colin Farrell was up introducing himself and he was like, yeah, my wife died yesterday. I'm like, what? Well, I, I ask a lot of questions about movies. And honestly, my first question came with the first shot um, with something like, I mean, it doesn't necessarily elicit a, uh, it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, uh, it doesn't require an answer right then and there, but uh, where, you know, Colin Farrell, his character's name is David. He's talking to his wife (laughs) off screen who you kind of come in in the middle of a conversation, but he's distraught and you can kind of put two and two together that she's leaving him. Um, And he asks her if he is, wears glasses or contacts which is a really odd question oh yeah yeah to ask about your wife's lover um only to uh and and, and, you know i put it out of my mind but it was something that stuck out um and throughout the movie people would constantly be kind of talking about different impediments or um you know uh limps lisps uh any anything uh you know, peculi- any peculiarities about them um, and trying to match them up with other people. And you just kind of, I mean, it never really gets fully explained, but basically just the impression you're left with, particularly by the shocking end of the movie, <laughs> even to the final final scene and shot even, um, is that the couples need to share some sort of prominent physical characteristic Um or I guess also an emotional characteristic, um, such as the woman who has no heart. <laughs> God, man, yeah. we, her scenes in the movie are probably some of the best, and and they're probably some of the most exemplary. Well, in that they exemplify what the movie does so well. So I don't know that I use the word exemplary, right? But that's all right. <laughs> um, and particularly, there's a scene where. Off, uh, off screen almost, even though they do show it at some point, uh, a woman who has tried to kill herself by jumping out of a window is still alive, but obviously going to die and is like screaming. Screaming, blood curdling. Oh, it's, it's just so it's unsettling. Horrifying. And meanwhile, Colin Farrell, who is trying to fake that he does not have a heart, just like this heartless woman, is just talking, you know, kind of having a, a normal conversation yeah. with, this, with this person. And it's... It's sort of one of those things that's... It's the blackest comedy I've, I've seen. Oh, yeah. Because um, it's it's yeah. kind of funny. Like, you wa- you kind of want to laugh, and maybe even you do laugh, but then you're sort of reflecting on the whole situation. And it, the camera work, by the way, definitely helps you reflect on the situation when it frequently pans back to this dying woman. Yeah, uh, it's funny, because uh, Dogtooth as well... And I'm probably going to bring it in here a couple times before I formally introduce it. We have a conversation about it. And 
Uh, I, I don't know if I, we mentioned that's going to be our third segment film. Oh, we did mention that. Yeah, yeah. That's, sorry. Our, that's our forgotten favorite, I suppose. Yeah, that's our forgotten. Uh, yeah, uh, it's, you know, kind of an iffy category, but yeah, <laughs> whatever. I wanted to see it. I hadn't seen it, and I thought it would be interesting. And and, and turns out, honestly, I think that we couldn't have picked a better film to be in conversation with The Lobster because I think there's a lot of similarity between these two films that kind of highlights um, or accentuates their differences. So... Um, but uh, with Dogtooth as well, like in, bo- in both these films, because they're both described, uh, I mean, but after you know, being you know surrealist and uh, absurdist, uh, and- uh, absurdist and austere, uh, they're described sometimes as comedies, um, or at least as having comedic elements to them. And some people have no idea <laughs> what they're why, talking about. What they're talking about. Actually, I, Roger Ebert was one of them. Um, I, I, I and do. I'm going to bring up. I'm bringing. I'm going to bring up his review of Dogtooth later too. But okay. uh, yeah, one of the things he said is like some people call this a comedy. I was not laughing. Yeah. Well, uh, I will say this. I do know what they're talking about. But the thing is, any moment in these films where you would laugh, it you're laughing. The source of the comedy is from a really disturbing. Uh, it, 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 the comedy has disturbing origins. It's it's basically about human behavior in crippling, dehumanizing systems. That's basically, I, I mean, that, that that's like a unifying theme between these two films: people being put in stringent environments where they're kind of forced to subvert their natural humanity mm-hmm. and to act a certain way. And that certain way, you know, that, that that way of behaving. Kind of, you know, it, it strikes us as as absurd and ridiculous, and that may elicit laughter or provoke a you know a, a response is like, hey, oh yeah, that's a comedic touch. But the thing is, it's coming from a stripping away of our you know most fundamental characteristics as humans. So, yeah, it's it's funny in the bleakest possible sense of the word. Um. And no, I was not laughing, but I, I recognized the comedic elements. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, yes. Um, well, you know, it's you were talking about the overall broad structure of the, well, I don't know, the more thematic elements of the, of the movie. And it's interesting because I sort of, at least on first glance of both these movies, I really considered... I didn't. I didn't consider that Dogtooth was so much about these themes. In fact, it, when whereas the Lobster is sort of can be seen as like a commentary on you know modern day relationships, Dogtooth wasn't in my mind wasn't really going for anything in particular. And and you know this film has been dissected a bunch, and no one really can make heads or tails of it, so to speak. Mm. So there and there's there's certainly a lot it's saying. But it's not saying any one particular thing. And, you know, I, I think in, in my mind when I first watched the movie, I was like, oh, watch The Lobster. I was like, okay, well, The Lobster is about relationships. Yeah. Yes. There is more, though. So th- not so much on the comedy, but you did um, make me think of another thought. I'm stupid right now. I'm sorry. No, it's all right. It's all right. Uh, that's, what, that's what these conversations are all about. All about me being stupid and Mike being real smart. Hey. Uh, that's that's why we do this, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was that the end of your thought? 
I, you know, I need to think more thoughts, but okay, great. Um, I, I mean, I'll say this, I, I've, cause I read a lot about dog tooth after I watched it because I, it's kind of, it's one of those movies that you can interpret a million different ways. And I am interested to see what, what people are going to read into it. Um, it's, it's noticeably different from the lobster and that is, it's a lot more claustrophobic. It's, um, it's a lot more tight. There are, I believe six characters in the film. Um, there might be other people at different points, but they're really like just six characters that matter. And um, I, I read everything from like, it's a, uh, you know, it, it, it's got no point and it's just absurd to it's a commentary about, um, about, uh, you know, I- invasive government spying and pro <laughs> government programs. And all of them were, were intriguing or interesting. Um, but honestly, I like to me, the film just kind of came off as um, almost a modern day representation of um, you know the alleg- the famous allegory of the cave. Um, maybe it's Plato's allegory of the cave. It's oh. bas- basically the idea of uh, three prisoners who are chained to a cave wall um, their entire lives, and all they see are shadows cast on the wall uh, from a fire roaring. Yeah, down. yeah, it's seen as almost like a, a movie theater now from nowadays, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, basically. And this idea is like that that becomes reality for them and that when one of the prisoners escapes um, and sees the outside world and comes back and relates it to the two prisoners, they think that he's delusional and, and no one... Uh, basically, their own interpretation of reality is so relative to each person. Um that doesn't necessarily reflect the plot of Dogtooth, but um, not to you know, not don't want to give anything away. But I, to me, that's kind of what the film was kind of, almost uh, an exploration of how uh, how much. I, I mean, I applied it to honestly, it's weird, but I applied it to my own life in the sense of just like thinking about how much of my behavior and things I do and words I use and you know. Uh, thoughts I have about particular things, how much of that is just a social construction, which is pretty much all of it, and, you know, how absurd it would be if even just little bits of it were tweaked, if words I used were applied differently, you know, um, if, you know, de- I, if ideas about sex were changed, if ideas about, you know, of aging and growing, and, and even the relationship among family members. Um, so I just found it interesting in that sense as almost a social experiment, really, um, of sick social experiment um this is clearly <laughs> not a healthy way to do anything um but uh, yeah i don't know i think the overall theme that i've found and the only one i can really draw a through line is sort of this idea of perversion and i don't mean like i don't mean anything like a sexual <coughs> deviant or anything sorry a sexual deviant or anything even though there's plenty of sexual deviancy, deviancy in both of these films yeah, but is. the idea of taking something that the audience sees as normal and comforting and turning it as on turning it on its head and uh, you know I mentioned it earlier and Roger Ebert said about Dogtooth that the cinematography that Yorgos Lanthimos uses is much like a series of family portraits with something off about them. And that's probably the best description I've heard of, of Dogtooth and the way the camera uses that. It's just, I mean, this is Dogtooth is a movie about a family and that's all I'm going to say about it for now. Um, but there, but lots of things about them are 
not what we would think of as a family, you know, a, you know, a typical family, what a typical family does and how they interact with one another. Um, the only qualm I would take with that statement is that there's nothing slightly off about the internet. <laughs> they are very... It's off. <laughs> it's, it's off. They will frequently frame characters... Uh, you know, cutting off their faces, cutting off you know parts of the like, like they are framed very awkward. Not uh, awkward's not even the right word because it's deliberate, but they're framed off kilter. It's not traditional cinematography by any definition. Just if anyone's confused, he's not talking about literally cutting off their faces. <laughs> no, no, I mean like their faces are off, off the screen. You know, we're generally seeing them a, a lot of times from the neck down, uh, sometimes from the torso down. Um, they'll be. Um, very much uh, filmed uh, far to the left or far to the right, with a lot of you know, w- with a lot of blank space uh, in between. Or sometimes you'll just you'll just see like their their knees to their neck. You know, you won't. Yeah. Or even um, th- there's even a pretty disturbing dance number that comes later in the film that's filmed. I mean, you would think it'd be the most straightforward thing ever. It's filmed head on, but it's so unblinking as it keeps going on. And as the care, you know, as the, you know, one daughter tires out and the other one just kind of divulges into a, a flash dance that <laughs> like it, it becomes disturbing. It becomes uncanny. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's easy to see a lot more straight up commentary in the lobster just because, you know, I mean, this is a society that he's created that. that enforces everyone being in a relationship that demonizes masturbation you know (laughs) yeah like a lot of these things you know basically hunts down and singles out single people you know so it's easy to see a lot of parallels of course in the lobster taken to an extreme but easy to see a lot of parallels with the society we live in now yeah um yeah and that's where when i was watching the movie i kind of you know, I was on board with with that part of it. When they start to get to the the loner section of the movie, I suppose the world building for me so- fell through just a bit because I wasn't sure. It didn't. It didn't come off. Just their details didn't come off as entirely believable to me. The details of this loner society, because yeah. I could see why. I could see why the you know the side of saying okay, everyone should be in a relationship. That sort of m- makes sense. But then the loners say. It would make sense for me if the loners were like, you can be in a relationship if you want, but you don't have to be. But well, yeah. the loner society is, you have to not be in a relationship. You basically think, I mean, I thought when we transitioned to that part of the film, they were basically just going to be tree-hugging hippies. They were yeah, just, right? I mean, do whatever you want. Like you free know? love, you know? <laughs> Away from the oppressive government. But no, it's actually just its own form of oppressive government, just out in the woods with, with limited resources. Um and that's why I didn't think there was enough. I didn't think there was. I didn't think there was enough there to translate into real world that I thought would assist its commentary. But at the same time, there's still all these other things we've been talking about. This element of perversion that he likes to play with uh, that makes it less a commentary movie. I don't know. I'm sort of stumbling, but it's no, it's, it's complicated. Well, let, let me frame it like this because I did have a question for you about this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know. I, I know that it, it's in dispute whether this is actually like a, a sci-fi movie, whatever. Just it's dystopian. Um, dystopian movies like this, and I'm thinking of things like Snowpiercer too. They uh. tend to basically create allegories out of humanity. They they create these situations that you know <laughs> em, you know emphasize to the nth degree different compulsions or different tendencies or different you know. 
uh, ways humans act in contemporary society, right? That's kind of one of the main points of, of sci-fi. That's why we embrace it as a genre, because we can kind of uh, assess ourselves in the present. Um, but I think that that kind of comes at a, at a, it's kind of a double-edged sword, because it can go too far and just become preachy. Um, or it just becomes so far removed from humanity and make its point way too strongly to the point where it doesn't even really apply to us anymore. Well, yeah, I was going to, um, if you want to talk about drowning in world building, you mentioned Snowpiercer, so. Right. And that kind of went through my mind a little bit. And I was wondering how you would respond to it in The Lobster, because in The Lobster, um, I will admit, like, there's not, there's none of the clunky exposition that was in Snowpiercer, that's for sure. Um, but there's also never really... I mean, we get the scenario. We're eventually given pretty much all the information about the scenario, but we're never really given the why. Um, and the only why I was really left with, is, you know, why is society like this, is just to make a point about our, our current, um, you know, our current views on, on um, human relationships, on monogamy, on um, single people. Mm-hmm. And um, I was wondering if that was enough for you to be engaged and interested in this world, which, I mean, seems really sapped of humanity. I mean, the, the way people talk in this are, and, and honestly, in uh, Dogtooth as well, it's pretty robotic. Yeah. These, well, they seem like dehumanized people, which is obviously the point. It's not like yeah, it's not like I'm saying, oh, Yorgos Lanthimos didn't direct his actors right. They're talking like robots. Like No, it was clearly intended that way. But did that come off to you as, too far removed from you know the you know our world or anything that would actually you know be relevant to us no you know i i did start to think you know when you mentioned when they went to the other society you thought they were going to be hippies i just thought they were going to like escape because up until that point i thought that the place was voluntary you know <laughs> right um that people elected to go here and then but they also sort of signed some sort of contract i don't know and then i realized that they can't go back to the hotel and they can't go to the city because the city is where they actually enforce you know, right. you know like they have people in malls you know cops like checking to see if people have marriage certificates and things like that right um so and at that point it did sort of lose me but i think it got me probably in the end i sort of by the actual end i realized what the point of it all was like it wasn't and i don't think it was really to make this broad co- commentary about uh, you know the modern day relationships it was instead to ask what would you do you know give, given this scenario that given this situation yes that i've constructed and it might not be as as ham it might not be as uh, smooth as a smooth construction construction as i'd like it to be or as you'd like it to be but given this scenario a person in colin farrell's mind who seems to be probably the closest to an actual like on earth you know in our society human that we have there yeah what would someone like that do given the choice between okay i have to be in a relationship or i have to not be in a relationship and what and these things i have to do to actually be in a relationship or to not be in a relationship you know how far are you willing to go what are you willing to do and given that theme thinking back on it i'm able to look more fondly but i will admit to having you know and this is hindering hindering my viewing experience so it is legitimate but having you know, sorry, being at the theater and watching it at the moment, I was kind of like, what? But upon further reflection, I think The Lobster holds up more than I gave it credit for, so. Yeah, I, I to me, because to, like, to me, just saying that it's ultimately a question about what would you do, 
that's not satisfying to me because you can apply that to pretty much any scenario. I mean, I've heard people defend Saw movies for that very reason. <laughs> like, well, I mean, not that not that the Lobster's End is entirely dissimilar to a Saw movie. That's but. a good point. Um, it's much more. Uh, it's it's much more uh, conservative with what it shows. But, <laughs> it's uh, not gratuitous, yeah. It's not. <laughs> it, and yet it's somehow more horrifying to me than like. Oh yeah, was, yeah. Like when I, uh, I I will will get I, I'll explain specifically what it is in a, in, a, in a moment. Well, but, and I don't and you know I think like by the end that really put the hammer on it, but I don't think that that question is entirely absent from the rest of the movie. You know they they work they work through that a lot with you know the situation when they leave the society, leave the hotel and go to the loner society. They yeah. deal with that a lot. They have lots of different like moral, moral quandaries that they have to uh, come up with. And when you, when they fell in love in a situation that does not approve of their love, that does not allow for their love, how, what are, what are they going to do to get around that? I mean, I, I, I get that. I, I, I think that the way that I have eventually reconciled to view the film in a way that like, does make it meaningful to me um, is actually kind of as an extension of uh, many of the themes of Dogtooth mm-hmm. um, to a broader scope. Dogtooth is focused specifically on one family, and I think that that was hugely to its benefit. I think that it is a lot more effective um, seeing this insular, isolated, and kind of suffocating world as opposed to the lobster, which try and goes, tries to, it seems like it tries to go full on societal commentary, which I don't think Yorgos Lanthimos is as tactful with. But um, in terms of a film about you know dehumanizing systems and humanity trying to seep out through that, well, yeah, it's like how people react in a extremely oppressive situations. Yeah, and and I, I also like the idea that whether you are you know rigidly you know authoritarian. Uh, you know, you're with the, you know, within the structures of government, um, and you're abiding by the rules. Or if you're a, f- uh, a, f- a fucking hippie living out in the woods, um, both of them have created their own oppressive structures that, uh, you know, ultimately detriment the people around them, and that ultimately lead a dude to, um, you know, mutilate himself. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh. Okay. Let's let's have a let's break into a spoiler conversation. Yeah, sorry. Okay, we're no, no. Let's let's break into this. You you think he blinded himself? Yeah, I do. I think he abandoned her. Do you really? I hundred percent think he abandoned her. Why do you say that? Um, because the the you know the long holding breath pause um, that you talked about. Yeah, uh, right, right, right. In the pre-show. Uh, I think that was in the pre-show. Regardless, um, the focus, uh, the last shot being. A shot of uh, Rachel Weisz. I don't know if that's how you say your name. I'm sorry. Weiss. I think it's Weiss. Weiss. Rachel Weiss by herself with more space in the frame. And if you it, maybe a little title card dropping was a little bit more telling than we thought because it cuts right to the title card of the lobster, which could indicate and did indicate to me that he turned into a lobster. Mm. Okay, interesting. So maybe we should explain a little bit. You know, leading up to. I mean, I guess this is spoiler talk they would have theoretically seen the movie, but just in case they haven't and just want to spoil it for themselves. Um, when uh, when Colin Farrell and Ra- Rachel Weisz are discovered to uh, be amorous with one another, um, the uh, leader of the single people out in the woods, um, 
who's played by I can never pronounce her name. The correctly. Spectre Girl. Yeah, Leah Sedu. I don't. Yeah. You know, she she also had a role as one of the um, Lapadite daughters. In, yeah. yeah, I know that's where I first saw her. Um, and then she was in uh, uh, Blue is the Warmest Color, and now she's in everything. Um, yeah. But uh, so she plays the leader of these people out in the woods and forbid, you know, who are forbidden to actually um, become romantically involved with one another. When she finds out that uh, uh, Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz, uh, who's actually, Rachel Weisz's character is never named. I didn't actually realize that, but she's but Yeah, not, she's a short-sighted woman, right? She's short, yeah, she's a short-sighted woman. Um, so when, when those two characters are, are, you know, discovered to be involved with one another, um, she takes Rachel Weisz... Uh, to a doctor under the pretense that uh, the doctor's going to fix her eyes. She'll no longer be short-sighted. Um, and, but the procedure actually uh, blinds her. And so uh, she uh, leaves Rachel Wise blinded in the middle of the woods. Um, and uh, that's when her and Colin Farrell kind of devise an escape plan and they leave. Um, and they, they've, you know, they, they successfully escape, but... Uh, as per the rules dictated in this universe, if they're going to be a couple, they need to have um, a similar trait, right? And of course, the most def- you know prominent characteristic of Rachel Weisz is she is blind. So Colin Farrell uh, at a rest at a diner with Rachel Weisz asks the waiter for a steak knife, and uh, the last shot we see of him, he's in the bathroom. Uh, he stuffs uh, towels in his mouth so he won't bite his tongue. And uh, he is about to jab the knife into his eyeballs. And uh, we don't actually see that or hear it. It cuts back to Rachel Wise sitting alone at the diner table. Uh, it holds on her for quite a long time, it seems like. And then it cuts to black. Um, so it's, inter- you know, it's interesting. I didn't even actually consider the possibility that he left. Well, I, I understand that. It's, it's sort of open to discussion. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I really that I, I realize that now, but I didn't actually like even consider that there would be a discussion on it. Yeah, no, it was funny when you said, "Oh, it leads him to mutilate himself." I'm like, "Whoa, oh, I don't know if that's uh... if that's true at all, huh?" I mean, it's actually. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I don't know. I still. I mean, what would? Huh? Because now I'm trying to recontextualize that ending. Um, and think about what it would mean. I mean, th- to me, that's the value of, of ambiguous endings, right? You can reinterpret it. I mean, that's actually what I liked about uh, the one you love. The one, I, the one I love. I was just I about love. to bring that up. Yeah, right. uh, it, it, you know, it's an your ambiguous- interpretation of the ending drastically changes the entire movie. So you essentially get multiple endings, uh, <laughs> right? For with one ending. Um, so no, I'm, I'm glad you introduced that element because I'm trying to think about what the implications are of of everything, their entire relationship, their escape. Um, if ultimately he's going to decide to abandon her and become a lobster. I'm wondering if that was actually, if that would make, you know, motivational sense with his character. I mean, it's, I, I, it would be a contrast, I suppose, with what he has done. At the same time, though, he, the only thing he was able to really show that he did, and this is one of those other things that, you know, that lends itself to the question of what would you do in this situation was that he was was able to kill Leah Sadu's character, the leader of the loners. Right. Um, and, you know, he was like, you know, I'm going to do this for us. But at the same time, that's still selfish, you know? 
And when it came down to, okay, I have to blind myself or take a chance at becoming a lobster, you know, and okay. see how that works for me. And actually, it's funny, they, you know, they consider the transformation of an animal to be a second chance in this society. Yeah, it's it's not, I mean, a lot of people do seem they, to see A lot as, of people dread it, but yeah, still. But they kind of, you know, tell you, don't fear it, it's a second chance for you to find love as your as the animal that you get turned into um which is i guess an interesting way of contextualizing it i also i love how uh, sorry random side note i love how when they're in the woods you will randomly see various animals walking past in the background <laughs> at first it's like normal animals that you would expect to see in the forest like a rabbit um <laughs> but then like you'll see you know like you see pe- like a hippo and like a peacock and then a, a camel big ass moose or camel yeah it's just funny actually they kind of imply that they they never obviously never confirmed this, but they kind of imply that all of the animals in the world are transformed humans. Yeah, yeah. They like that's why there's so many dogs because everyone's right. dogs. Yeah, right. I don't know what to think about that either. But um, so here's why I think that he does it because I think that a big theme of the movie is what people will do mm-hmm. to you know express their humanity in the context of these rigid systems. So you know the idea that someone would mutilate themselves. Um, you know, just to do a simple thing like express their love for another person to be in a to be a couple, um, like to me that's a poignant idea, and not like not that you know we should do that, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> but just but just like you know this idea of humanity kind of like having to you know fight and literally stab its way to be expressed. Um, I think that's kind of how I interpreted it. But now with your interpretation as well, it, it could also have a, a a tinge of, you know, selfishness and, you know, when, you know, w- when it co- comes to inflicting pain on others to fight for love, it's it's easy. When you have to do it to yourself, it becomes more complicated. One and of course that doesn't just that's do not it. just a a statement on, you know, what you're willing to physically do to yourself, you know, but I mean, it's about I mean, if you want to take a broader commentary approach, you easily can. It's about self-sacrifice, and a lot of relationships are about self-sacrifice. What do you, you know? You there's things you have to give up when yeah. when you enter in a, into a serious relationship, even marriage. You know, so yeah. and are you willing to do that? And maybe probably the reason I think, you know, having seen these two films, also that he didn't, and then he just abandoned her. It's just because what you've described is a very, like, hopeful, optimistic look, outlook. And it's, Yorgos it's, Lanthimos it's, doesn't seem like that kind of filmmaker. How? Did that, how? Like, that's not a very optimistic... I mean, I guess it's the idea that, like... Well, yeah, he has to blind himself. That totally fucking sucks. But who has, has to, the, the strength of the human spirit. You know, I suppose, per, well, pursuing over oppression. You know, that... I, I guess so, yeah. But, I mean... I think that kind of comes out in both the lobster, though, and in the conclusion of Dogtooth, right? It's inflicting. I mean, the scene in the lobster where he's, you know, holding the knife to his eye is directly mirroring a scene at the end of Dogtooth, where. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. If we if we want to just kind of you know get in spoiler territory for that as well, um, where the uh, oldest daughter, who actually is the same person who plays the heartless woman in the lobster. <laughs> um, which kind of gave it an extra <laughs> hint of uh, subversity to me, but um, she, you know, the the um, the myth that the parents tell their children 
who are, I mean, I believe they're like in their, at least in their 20s. Well, yeah, and maybe just a quick intro to oh, Dogtooth yeah. before yeah, we jump that. into the spoilers. So it's, it's kind of hard to keep these conversations separate because to me, these films are very intertwined. It, yeah, and I want to talk about it, and it's let's a great it. place to talk about it, b- well, but well, I want to make sure that people know what the fuck we're talking about first. <laughs> For sure. Please, please proceed. Let's do it. So, as I said, Dogtooth is it's just a focus on this family, and more and more you realize that thing that things are just wrong and actually in the first dialogue is using words in context that don't make sense you know um and I, what were the three words like ocean and excursion and things like that they replace those with normal things like yeah you know that they should be and later in the movie they refer to like a vagina as a keyboard <laughs> um or like a, a pussy as a flower or, or yeah, yeah. Or uh, they'll be at a table and and pass the telephone. Pass the telephone, right? And they hand them the salt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't really know why, but and it's really interesting. The same sort of way that the lobster does it, they let you in on the idea that the family is feeding them this wrong information for the purposes of keeping them where they are and keeping them obedient. Yeah, keeping them dependent. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. It's it becomes such an insular world that they can't. I mean, like, to the point where, I, like, I love how Dogtooth disperses information. I mean, it's basically, really, Dogtooth is basically just a series of home movies um, about this really fucked up family. There's, <laughs> there's not really a plot, and you just, and there's no explanation. There's no, uh, there's no uh, introduction or context you're given. You're just basically thrown into this bizarre situation and you have to kind of figure out what's going on what are they actually taught what do they believe by seeing them just go about their day-to-day lives which it's actually like i think it's brilliant um and uh one of my like like um uh one of the girls will throw uh, like whenever when a plane flies overhead they think it's going to fall out of the sky as a toy plane and uh (laughs) Their parents will, you know, go and hide in the bushes and throw a toy plane, and one person has to go find it. Um, and at one point, the oldest daughter gets uh, upset or jealous, uh, and she throws the plane um, past the house gate outside. And uh, the boy tells his father when he comes home and asks him to retrieve it. The father actually has to get in his car, drive out about three feet, and pick up the plane from. Well, yeah, his- and that's because they've told them that you because cannot told leave them, right. unless no. you're in the car. No, right, but it, it like you get that from just that peculiar behavior, and like to me, I'm just like that, that's kind of where like actually that was maybe like one of the aha moments where I'm just like, oh, that's how the movie is doing exposition. That's fucking brilliant. Well, yeah, and I had to think about too. The telephone was one of them, and then there was another one that's tipped me off. I can't remember what it was, but I'm like, why don't they want them to know about these words? Like, what's special about these? Okay, like telephone. You know, excursion is like you know, going out and exploring out, places. Right, exactly. so, you telephone, know, I was like, they're trying to keep them where they are, you right, know, te- not let them know about the outside world. Telephone is communication with other people. Um, you know, pussy and vagina, those are, you know, things, um, you know, sexual terminology uh, is completely diverted from anything actually related to sex. In fact, actual sex for them is just become a part of uh, routine to, to the point where there's like no real, you know, passion or desire in it it's just procedural it's just a uh, and obviously that doesn't i mean that changes um, it does yeah uh but you know to them they're completely ignorant of 
or not ignorant. Ignorance is the wrong word because it, it implies malice when it really it should <laughs> it shouldn't, but it does. Um, but they're you know oblivious to how the outside world would view sex. Um, I, I don't know. I I just found it interesting because it. I, I don't know. It's it's like the ultimate modern day experiment of the cave of creating this idea of reality out of whole cloth for people and and you know exploring how what you know how they behave what who what they're like as people when they grow up in it and still um you know one of the and one of the myths that they tell their children is that they'll be able to leave the uh the house when their their dog dog comes comes out right which i you know they're canaan teeth um which of course don't fall out until i mean until you're old and your teeth just fall out naturally um so basically, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll never leave. Um, but the older daughter becomes, I mean, her, her compulsion to leave, you know, she, I mean, she gets exposed to, you know, pieces of culture from the outside, movies. She starts referencing them. She, oh, know, yeah. And, through, and, a, through a different scenario, she ends up seeing like Rocky and things like that. And Jaws. Um, and it, it just, it, it gets to the point where she, you know, is standing in front of a mirror. And this is maybe the most, I mean, this scene like freaked me out because of how realistic it felt. Yeah. She hits herself in the face with a, a dumbbell to knock out her Canaan teeth um, to basically indicate, yeah, I can, I can leave now. Um, and, and, and she, she whacks like three or four times from what I remember with that dumbbell right on her canines. Just yeah. And every time a little bit more blood splatters on the mirror, it is, I mean, it is a, Oh God, I fucking felt that like i have not felt a, a a shot in a long time that was that was brutal um and and she leaves and to me that ultimately signified <laughs> at some point even with all the typical social construction of you know what humanity is taken away people will still fight for that drive to be free to be human and express themselves. I know, I know it's not communicated in that optimistic way. And it's not even really an optimistic message. I think it's kind of just treated more clinically, but I, I, that was my takeaway from dog tooth. And that's also my takeaway from the lobster. So that's why I will, I'll fight for my interpretation that he does actually go through with it, but I'm glad you introduced the, the possibility that he doesn't because that hadn't actually occurred to me. I don't know. I mean, it's worth it to note too that the gruesome thing that she had to do in Dogtooth was shown on camera, whereas they avoided doing that in Lobster. Fair, fair point. And something oh, that would have been a lot more horrifying in the Lobster. It's true. Yes. And the question is that the question I have is all this talk about her, you know, fighting out to get her her fighting to get out. Where is she right now? As we left her, where is she? And how is this in any world going to work out for her? If, by the way, she's uh, even alive. <laughs> oh, yeah, are you ta- you're talking about the final shot at this point, right? Dogtooth, yeah. Oh, good, because I want to talk about it because I have, I mean, I, I am equally curious. I mean, that's a film that's obviously uh, an open ending. Like, yeah, like, yeah. Is, is she alive in there? What's going to happen? Like, is she going to get out of the trunk and find places? Is she just going to be turned around and, you know, go back right back home? Yeah, uh, because there's like, in fact, like with The Lobster, I think there's like essentially two possibilities of what happened. Yeah. Uh, with Dogtooth, I have about like 
four or five different theories about what could be happening. And I'm so what, what happens is that she runs away from, you know, after knocking out her cane and she doesn't tell anyone. Um, she just runs out to the yard and actually kind of a, it's interesting. It's just kind of a, a handheld, uh, tracking i mean it's not a tracking shock it's not a track but it just follows her through the yard and it's it's kind of disturbing just because of how like homemade it feels you know um and she's like got blood splatter all over her face her blood splattered smile is that's gonna haunt my fucking dreams Um, (laughs) but she climbs into her father's car and and, 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 sorry sorry i'm sorry yeah into the trunk of the car and uh just stays there and the family goes out looking for her um you know, barking, and uh, one sister calls out Bruce, which she indicated was her name earlier in the... Which, uh, <laughs> that's the probably the first time it occurred to me that none of these people have names. Yeah, they Which is have... another theme that's they... carried over in The Lobster, with the exception of Dave, no one has a name. It's true. Um, um, I think uh, John has... There's a, a, a character with a... Uh, a character with a limp. I believe he has a name. I think he's called John. I thought they called him John at one point. Hmm. Um, but doesn't really matter. It's yeah. The, the names are clearly not pronounced. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the um, she's oh, in the trunk. Oh, actually, no. I remember. Sorry, no. Really quick, I remember because uh, uh, William, uh, not William H Macy. God damn it, John C. Uh, Riley. John C. Riley is talking to Colin Farrell, and he says, "You know, John." And and Colin Farrell's like, "Who?" Says, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The limp, the the limping man. It's like, oh, right, right. sorry, I forgot his, I forgot his name. <laughs> I'm not even sure they even mentioned his name before. Um, but anyway, sorry, minor digression. But yeah, so um, you know they failed to locate her, and the next it just cuts to the next morning with the father going to work. He drives his car, parks it in front of his factory door that he walks in not in a parking lot and it sounds i mean i replayed the scene it really sounds like he leaves the car running um and the camera just stays fixated on the trunk you don't see anyone moving um although it's kind of disputable whether you see movement in the trunk but no one like escapes from it and there's not like strong pounding or anything it's pretty quiet and then it just cuts to black so Again, leaving you holding your breath, wondering what's going to happen. Right. Like, she could have, like, did she die in there? Is she just sleeping? Um, is she unable to get out? Is she going to, did she change her mind and is going to wait to go back to the house? Like, is she scared? Um, there are, yeah, I mean, there are about five or six different ways it could go. And all of them, I think, have interesting implications. They, they really do, and that's that's probably the most interesting thing about this movie is just how open it is, and and I don't think this is, I don't think this is lazy filmmaking by any means by saying like, oh, well, make of it what you will, whatever, you know, <laughs> just no, figuring not. out these things that don't have meaning, but people have looked into this from like obedience, oppression, uh, dissemination of information by the government, as you've said, you know, these. Yeah. What, what, I, what I like, I mean, t- t- okay, so here's what, here's where I draw the line between um, lazy filmmaking and, uh, you know, leaving it artfully uh, up to interpretation um, is that in the case of Dogtooth, um, every one of the possible, um, every one of the possible outcomes means something different. And um, that's awesome. Like, I love playing with those different meetings. I'm like, I, like, it could be any one of those, and I get to think about the consequences and the ramifications and the implications of every single one of them. 
Um, that's why I get pissed at uh, an open ending like Birdman because no matter what it is, it doesn't mean anything. It's pointless. It's it, it's just it's just there for the sake of ambiguity. That's what I don't like about it. That, that that's what I consider lazy, pretentious storytelling. Whereas, honestly, with both Dogtooth and the Lobster, and I I'm only just now realizing that it's ambi- that it's ambiguous at all. But each one of those means something different. It's a well, different way to view it, and you can kind of make your own predictions based on what you think the the overarching message of the film is. And it doesn't tell it to you because I think that these are better movies than that. A lot better, yeah. The only uh, you're right that the only thing you're gonna find out w- w- by guessing at the ending of Birdman is what literally happened. Right, like, oh, was he crazy or not? Like, it, it doesn't actually change anything about the character of Riggin. It doesn't change anything about, um, you know, the the themes of the film. It doesn't change anything about his stuff. It doesn't really, it, it, it does nothing except literally alter that actual plot point of what happened. But that's it. Like, that's not, to, to me, that's not a compelling ambiguity. That's just, it, it's just, pretentious i mean that is pretentious to me that, that that's the definition of pretension implying that there's you know significance to something that there's not yeah so um yeah how do you uh view these films uh in terms of uh like comparatively i i i thought that i, I really enjoyed the lobster i thought that dog tooth was kind of a fucking masterpiece like, no it's it's i honestly my first impression, Dogtooth is head and shoulders above, yeah, above the I would. Oh, I would agree with that, too. Um, I, I fucking loved Dogtooth. I really did. Yeah, uh, I, I, I should, like, Blu-ray this film, although uh, there's it no does Blu-ray. show pretty graphically a dead cat, which my oh, girlfriend would God. not be too happy with. Oh, yeah, that was that was brutal. That well, was- yeah, and, and the lobster shows a dead dog, which is, like, appa- apparently becoming Yorgos Lanthimos's disturbing signature. Yeah, he likes killing domesticated animals. Um, Great. Uh... So, actually, so did, were you able to track down an HD version of Dogtooth? Because I was not. Uh, um, sort of. I rented on Vudu. It didn't seem like it was in poor, poor quality. Okay, because I actually bought it on Amazon Prime. Oh boy! So, like the digital copy, not the DVD. Because the di- the thing is, I I looked it up, um, to stream. Because uh, that's you know if we're doing a, a third segment film, I usually either rent it from a local store, uh, from Scarecrow Video, or I just do streaming. And I got lazy and just wanted to do streaming. But they only have a standard def version of it, and the the difference between renting it and buying it was like a dollar. So I'm just like, well, fuck it, I'll just have it. You know, I, like I'll just have it to stream forever. But they only had a standard def version. I couldn't find a high def version. And and I even looked on Amazon. There's no Blu-ray. Oh wow. Did yeah. you check Blu-ray.com? Actually, I haven't. That's a good, that's hmm. good, good point. Um, actually, I felt the. This is actually one of those films though where I felt the standard dev helped. Well, yeah, it definitely contributed. Yeah, it made it seem. Oh, there is a Blu-ray. Okay, it's not on Amazon. That's weird. Yeah. Well, and I thought that the one I got was HD. The only thing <coughs> was that when I rented it on Vudu, it said that HD wasn't available on on PC. So. On a, for some reason, if I watch it on a TV, it could it could handle HD. But my my puny PC that's more powerful than my <laughs> my computer, uh, sorry, than my TV 
could not handle it or something. So. Interesting. Huh. Okay. There is a Blu-ray on Amazon. That's only four left in stock, but there's more on the way. All right. Well, there's a Blu-ray. It's still not available on HD uh, if you get it on Amazon Video. It's weird. Um, anywho. Which movie I, doesn't like computers, which is okay. supported by the movie. So <laughs> It is supported by the movie. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, I don't know. It just kind of gave it this more like home movie. It's kind of like what people said about Texas Chainsaw Massacre when it came out, the, the original one. Yeah. It, like, it kind of has this like home, almost has this home movie quality to it when it's, uh, when it's actually got kind of like worse video quality. I, I do want to see it in HD though. Um, but uh, watching it in standard D actually did kind of add this layer of, uh, dis- you know, of, uh, of it was it was a disturbing element there. Um, oh yeah, also there's this weird like subplot that's addressed in. It's not really a subplot because it, all it is is like a kind of an allegory for the whole film where the dad is uh, going to get their dog, which is in dog training school. And, uh, oh yeah! And the dog trainer gives him this whole speech about how you know uh, the dog needs time to be conditioned, and you know, and like, do you, do you want an animal or do you want a friend? And right. ba- basically spelling out his whole parenting philosophy. Um, and it's funny because he doesn't seem to like the answer that the dog trainer gives him. <laughs> right, but I'm like, but you're doing the- like he wants his dog back now, and he wants to you know have a companion. But he's treating. I mean, but he's doing what he's doing to his children. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was an interesting bit of uh, 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 simultaneously kind of explaining a the theme of the film a little bit, uh, you know, on the nose, but also kind of showing a bit of hypocrisy on the part of the father. So, well, it's also just it's really simple filmmaking too. When they oh, show the shot of the dog all the way back in this, for some reason, like twenty foot long cage, not right. approaching him at all. It's just about this creating distance, right? Yeah, it was, it's great, and it's not like, yeah, to me, that was a great image, because it was relevant, but it also, like, that that one in particular, it wasn't, like, hit you over the head, obvious. No, no, not at all, because it, it, it has meaning both in what it, what it actually is, and what it implies. Yeah, yeah. Um, man, yeah, check out Dogtooth, everyone, it's a fucking, like... It's really great, it's as advertised, if you've heard, if you were like Mike and I, and you heard... The rumors of Dogtooth as this amazing, you know, film of another tier—it's—it's it's what you hear. It is. Yeah. Um, lobster, pretty good. Yeah, I would. <laughs> yeah, I'd recommend the lobster too. But uh, if I mean, if you have a choice between one or the other, I'd say, I'd say Dogtooth is a. Um, I mean, it, it's not really fair to say that they explore the same themes, but I feel like there are a lot of similarities between them, and I just feel like Dogtooth is a more pure. Um, more well-realized uh, expression of what Yorgos Lanthimos is, seems to be getting at. Um, but both of them actually have, you know, successfully put him on my radar. I'm very interested to see where he goes. And there were actually, I mean, there were a couple of films he made in between Dogtooth and uh, The Lobster, which didn't get nearly as much publicity as The Lo- Lobster did. I'm, I'm not sure why, because The Lobster is like the first movie I've really heard uh, coming from him since... Dogtooth. So I'm not really sure what the deal is with the other two films, but I mean, can I be real? Can the, can, can what? Can I be real with you? Go ahead. The the lobsters in the English language. Oh fuck! You're right. That's, that's why we've heard more oh, about it. That's fuck, why I was advertised right. more. Oh my god! Yeah. Wow. I, I feel naive now, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's why it's more marketable to people that's who speak a, English. That's yeah. a very good point. It's got Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz, two attractive white people in the lead. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, you're <laughs> right. You got it. I, yeah, that that'll do it. 
Yeah, and that's also why The Lobster could probably be the best film this year, but <laughs> won't really, wouldn't really get... Because uh, it can't sneak in like, like Dogtooth did. Dogtooth sneaked in because it's in Greek. It's a Greek language film. It's in it's foreign language category. That's then, true. Now The Lobster has to compete because it's not foreign language. It has to compete in the best picture category. Right. Not that I'm saying, you know, it's best, best picture quality at this point. The, the year is so early. We will, however, be yeah. maybe discussing this film next week when we do our best of the year so far, which I hope is still our plan because it's still my plan. Yeah, it is. Um, we, yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it, depending on what, yeah, I mean, that would basically be our third segment, yeah? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it's a top five, so it should be pretty quick. Cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm down for that. I, we should do a quick run through of Independence Day resurgence, <laughs> and then we go sweet. to our. <laughs> All right. If that's what you want to do, I um, I'm gonna try and see Finding Dory too. Maybe we can mention bring that up because I yeah yeah for I, sure. I feel bad that um, we we weren't able to record last week and uh, we missed the opportunity to talk about Finding Dory this week in honor of talking about the Lobster, which way fewer people are seeing, but I also or have even heard of or have even heard of. But I also felt was an interesting conversation to have, particularly in the context of, of you know, dog tooth as well. Um, and, I, and I don't regret that at all. But I w- do want to see Finding Dory because I haven't had a chance to check it out yet, and it is apparently shattering box office records. Uh, yeah, yeah. What is it? The highest grossing weekend for an opening weekend for an for animated, an animated film, film. Yep. Oh. Yeah. Pretty, pretty I, crazy. <laughs> I was not expecting that for this. Yeah. And um, you know, I also saw The Conjuring too. James Wan is an asshole. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because he he I like the film pretty pretty good, pretty well. I like the film pretty well. Um, but man, does he just play us like a fucking fiddle? And I and I'm so I'm I'm aware of it, but not in any way that I find annoying. But I just I know that he I know he, his camera work is so distinctive and honestly manipulative in a way that just. He has the audience exactly where he wants them the entire time. It's and kind of, it's masterful, but I also I, f- I feel so used. <laughs> it's kind of the same way you feel if you like uh, if you marathon watch a bunch of Hitchcock. You well, yeah, exactly. You yeah, feel I mean, the same. I I'm not going to make the leap that James Bond is like <laughs> no. the Hitchcock of our time or anything. But no, no, no. But in terms of uh, feeling uh, feeling strung along, although Hitchcock, he you know he'll he'll uh, leave you limping away, rubbing your ass, but <laughs> but you'll probably be doing it with a smile on your face yeah right no and that's the same thing with with uh uh james wan and and the conjuring too it's sort of like i i know exactly what you're doing to me and i don't like it but i'll reflect fondly on it would you consider it a um a, a minor step down from the first one or would you put them on the same level you know i i would probably have to say it's a minor step down but i like how he was able to embrace these things it's sort of like we didn't get the chance to talk about the the you look like humor in um pop star you know no we didn't no and, we didn't and I, I mentioned it to you after the fact because i i made a note to myself that i wanted to bring <laughs> it up and, and i didn't but god damn it it's so pervasive everywhere yeah no and that's the thing like and w- how i'm relating this to the conjuring 2 is one of the things that conjuring 1 avoided in, in the horror genre was the the concept of jump scares and yeah. initially with The Conjuring 2, I was like, oh, well, there's a, you know, more jump scares here. But I, I look more importantly to, to how and when he's using them. And he sort of is treating it like a tool of horror, which is kind of what it is, but not the driving force behind the horror. And which 
is how people use jump scares and how people use you look like humor. They use it to create the comedy rather than add to the comedy. Right. So I was actually, I, I look on that a bit more fondly. It was originally going to be something I like to like, but I didn't, I wanted to move beyond the idea of, you know, tallying up a horror movie's jump scares. <laughs> That's and true. Saying, like, okay, the one with the least jump scares is a better movie. So, But it's just interesting because in both, like for both of the, of these devices, you're right. Because 90% of the time when I see them in a film, I'm just like, it's just, it's not just that it's, you know, a, a cliche. It doesn't even need to, like, you could take it out and lose nothing. Yeah. Like, like and they're, they're in movies I love, like, um. Uh, fucking! It follows. It's like, did we need a beach ball hitting her fucking window to scare us in that particular second? Like, <laughs> like, was that necessary? Um, I actually, I, I did tell you though that despite the, the fact that Popstar used uh, you look like humor, they were three of the funniest you look like jokes. They I've were. Heard. That's the thing. They were. They were really good. <laughs> So I kind of forgave it for that, but like in Spy, I could have done without all of those, and 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 the movie would have been no worse off for it. It wouldn't even have a space it needed to fill. It could just keep going along like it did, you know. It's just like why even put them in there? They're they're that that I think that's what's most frustrating about this stuff when it when it occurs gratuitously and unnecessarily is just how easy it would be to take it out. No, you're right, and that's why I think I need to evaluate more before I just flat out say, okay, The Conjuring is much better than Conjuring 2. They're a lot closer than I gave them credit for. I would think I'm, I would still fall on The Conjuring 1 is better, but not so easily and not so not based on such, you know, in my mind, petty reasons. Yeah, the thing that stands out to me in the original Conjuring, it's honestly not even the horror plot in the slightest. It's like the, I guess maybe fun's the wrong word, but like this like... I don't know this this like uh, exhilarating filmmaking, you know, like these like long shots through the house. This like where you get a sense of geography and and the camera just kind of glides sensuously throughout the entire. I mean, it's just cool. It's just like you, like you get a sense that there's like a uh, just a like a, a filmmaker at the helm, you know, like somebody who wants to show you a good time who has the tools to do that. No, he's so. really good at evoking a visceral reaction in the audience. Just something innate, you know, that we're, yeah. we're uncomfortable and you're making me uncomfortable and that's why I'm here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It just kind of seemed to f- like fly in the face of the vi- like typical visual language of horror. Like, Oh, you can't like, I don't know. I feel like there seems to be like this unwritten rule. Like you can't make, you can't put a shot this beautiful in a movie. That's scary. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Which is ridiculous, but yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I want to watch the original Conjuring again. It's a good movie. Yeah, definitely not a huge step down if it all is step down. Nice. Yeah, um, yeah. I also I, I realize now, and I, I apologize for the leading question because I could not have phrased it in a more <laughs> like in a more leading way. Would you consider it a uh, a step down or on the you know like I, I I think I'm sorry. I think I was trying to provoke you into something. <laughs> no, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> Yeah, so there was a little mini review of the Conjuring, just cherry on top. Conjuring yeah, why, two. Yeah, why not? We were running short anyway, so. Yeah, and I'm okay with that. Whatever, we did fine, and we actually managed to talk about two movies, something really sad, and HBO. Yeah, and I think we did a, a, a fair job at all that. Um, you know, good job. Hopefully, it's good. We will most likely be here next week. I promise that we. I promise that I, I, I we promise will most that, likely. Be I here. promise that we will likely be here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
great. That, um, that, that should honestly be the motto of our show. I'm, <laughs> so, so, we promise to be mostly, pro, mo, mostly probably one once a week. <laughs> the show where two jackoffs sometimes show up. Sometimes show up. I mean, talk about movies. That's pretty jack. That's a pretty jackoffy thing to do, right? <laughs> it's pretty fitting. Yeah. So we're just a couple of jackoffs talking about movies, and next week we are definitely going to talk about our best of the year so far. A top five. Look forward to that. It's going to be fun, and it was a good show this week. So thank you for listening. <laughs>